Welcome to the Podglomerate. This is Status, the show about how immigration impacts people. And mostly those people are immigrants. In fact, I never landed on the right tagline for this show, I don't think. But at one point, I was working with a version that went something like, the show that tells the story of immigrants through their own perspectives. But while that one felt like it placed the right person at the center of the narrative, it didn't really capture what we were going for when the show was dreamed up. The show always aimed to tell the stories of immigrants. But it was also meant to show how the difficulties of immigration processes everywhere impacted not only people going through those processes, but the people around them. If you've been with me since the beginning, you'll remember Kate and Nathan from the very first episode and Ariha and Clark from another season one episode. This show was born out of conversations I was having with the four of them on a regular basis about how immigration was affecting our friendships and our relationships. Kate, Clark, and I were American, and we were all in love with people who were going through some struggle involving migration. So when Nathan and I audited a radio storytelling class one quarter in grad school, he thought it would be a great topic. I was actually working on another piece entirely, to be honest. But it didn't work out, and frankly, he was right. Eight months after I started interviewing him and Kate, Status was born. The conversations I've had with people since then, the stories we've heard, they've been incredible. And you all have been wonderful listeners. You've reached out over Twitter. You've sent me emails offering to share your immigration journey. Specifically, one of my favorite memories is when many of you that know me well texted to let me know how deeply Juan and Patricia's story touched you. And all the while, there's been one story I haven't told. The story of Jonathan. And the story of us. It was really important for me to get this one right. In very concrete ways, this story, and even how it's told, directly impacts our lives. Not only that, But it was the thing Jonathan and I were carrying into those conversations that we'd have with our friends back then. Altogether with our friends' experiences, Jonathan's life and our life together formed the seed that became this show. If this is sounding like an ending to you, there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is that this episode is the last episode in my series on Jonathan. If you're just joining us, you should go back to episode one this will make a lot more sense. The second is that I've realized that this is a very natural place to bring status to a close. Jonathan was the impetus. Our friends pushed me to discover even more stories. You and I, we met some amazing people and heard tales of love, political intrigue, dreamers, rebuilding, and perseverance. I feel that status has done what I intended. We set out with a mission to make the difficulties of immigration feel tangible for people who didn't have to regularly worry about that kind of thing. And I believe we did that. The voices you heard on status joined a larger chorus of voices out in the world that are telling their stories in a time when fear of immigrants continues to rise globally. And I want to thank you for being there to hear them. So... After this episode, I'm doing two more. And then, it's goodbye. I'm not going anywhere, but 
status won't be returning after those two final episodes. For now, though, there's something I've got to finish. You're here for Jonathan's story. This is part five. Us. This is normally where I'd play a piece of tape for you. In general, I try to hand it off to the subject of the piece here. And the way that I do that is to make myself scarce for a bit. It's not my story after all. But this one's different. Because this time, I'm a character. And it occurs to me that some of you don't know much about me. I'll try and stick to the parts that matter. My sister and I were raised about 10 minutes north of Tulsa, Oklahoma, mostly by our dad and our maternal grandmother. I grew up going to the same private Christian school in Tulsa from first grade through graduation. In fact, I was in high school there about 15 minutes down the road from TU when Jonathan was getting his first degree. After high school, I moved far enough away for college to live comfortably, but not far enough I couldn't drive back for a weekend if I needed to. I had a pretty picturesque college experience. I made great friends, I drank a bit too much, and came out as gay, committed to far too many extracurricular activities, did pretty well in school despite all that, and moved back to the Tulsa area after graduation to take a job as a software engineer. Now, the place this story starts for me is in the condo I was renting when I moved back to Tulsa. It was a Sunday night in late March, and I was swiping through Tinder before bed, like you do. It had been an interesting few months of dating since I'd been back in town. Right after I moved back in December, I started seeing this guy. He wasn't interested in a relationship, and honestly, that didn't bother me. I was applying to grad school, and I wasn't sure how long I'd be staying in Oklahoma. But the whole thing turned into more of a relationship situation than either of us weren't really interested in. And it kind of died because of that. After that, I started being a lot more carefree about dating. I would chat with any guy I found attractive, on the apps at least. I wasn't scared of digital rejection anymore. I went on four or five dates with different guys. One of them we accidentally scheduled on Valentine's Day, which was awkward. But I didn't really hit it off with any of them. So I swiped. Mostly left, but occasionally right. Not really sure what I was looking for. <laughs> um, it was interesting because I, I had just finished a really terrible relationship. Like, it was really terrible. Um, yeah, it was Valentine's Day of 2014. And I had, like, I was dating somebody at the time. And I had, like, I've never planned anything for anybody. And I planned this beautiful, like, Valentine's Day. I went and, I went and bought a nice vintage watch for the person. And then, like, I planned, like, I made reservations to his favorite favorite restaurant um and then from the time that i picked him up from work it was just like he was angry at something and he hated the gift that i gave him he hated the fact that i made reservations at that restaurant he did not want to do anything else and so i finally lost it and like it, our relationship was very like rocky i don't even know why we had it i think i just felt lonely and we you know we ended up just kind of like dating each other and that day, I'm like, I'm going to drop you off at your apartment, and then this is the last time you're going to see me. And that's it. 
one of my friends telling me about Tinder. Like, this is a couple of days after. Uh, one of my friends telling me about Tinder. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and, and, like, he told me, it's like, you know, it's one of those apps that you can just, like, swipe left if you don't like somebody. Swipe right if you like somebody. And I'm like, okay, fine. And so, like, I, you know, log in, um, create an account. And actually, like, he created an account for me. Um, and I log into my phone. And I just, like, started, like, seeing this, like, swipe left, swipe left. I spent a couple of days just swiping left and right. And then I see this really cute guy. Like, and you're going to laugh. But um, I see this really cute guy. He was wearing a, like, like a red shirt, like, with little, um, kind of, like, a plaited or whatever. No, it wasn't plaited. It's, like, a little checkered red shirt with a bow tie. And he was sitting at a table, and he was looking at something. He was smiling. And I'm like, oh, this guy's cute. Then I swipe right. And so when I swipe right, he was just like, like you're a match. And then I send him a text or send you a text. And I'm like, hey, um, would you like to get some coffee? And I don't know what you were doing, but you're like, sure, whatever. What I was doing was laying in bed. And what I was thinking was that it was refreshing to have someone just ask to meet up for coffee right off the bat. Remember, I was doing this a lot. So I was having a lot of getting-to-know-you type chats over dating apps. And this time, before all that, someone had decided I was at least worth meeting. And not in, like, a skeezy way. So we continued to talk. And so, like, and then I, I start thinking about it as, like, I'm like, well, I kind of really like it. We, we, we talked a little bit, and then I'm like, I, I, I like the way this guy talks, so would you like to have dinner? And then that dinner turned into a dinner in a movie. Literally over a few minutes, our coffee had turned into dinner in a movie. He picked a place, and we set the date for Monday night. He must have changed his mind or been hungry for Mexican food because as I was leaving work, he called me to ask if I mind changing the restaurant to a Mexican restaurant across the street from where we planned on meeting. And I remember you walking in and you looked really adorable because you had um, your blue jeans. You had that pink um, Diverge t-shirt that I had no idea what that symbol meant until after I met you. And then like a, re- um, a gray jacket with your kind of like reddish shoes um, back then. And I like as soon as I saw you, I'm like, oh my god, this guy's adorable. My first impression of Jonathan was honestly that I'd never really dated anyone this suave. I feel ridiculous when I say that, but it's true. I just graduated college and I went to school in a tiny town in Oklahoma. As the years progressed, the only new gays in town were grad students and freshmen, and they were overwhelmingly skewed towards the latter. Jonathan dressed well. He was really smart. He could carry an intelligent conversation. He had his own car. He had his own apartment. And he was charming. I used to think all those things were really silly. But then I met him, and I kind of got it. He just looked so good when he got out of the car with his colorful button-up shirts, his Ray-Bans, and his slick-back hair. My other primary memory from that dinner is that Jonathan told me the story about the time he carried the Olympic flag. I did not believe him, and I googled it when I got home. I found the only video of it on YouTube. It's grainy, but he's there. Anyway. And then we just started talking, and it was really nice. And then we went to see... um... Oh my god. 
What was the movie? We saw Divergent. Yeah, we saw Divergent. There we go. We saw Divergent as a first date. It was nice. And then you kissed me halfway through the movie. Yeah, it was really good. I'm not going to fight with <laughs> about it on this I'll, I will <laughs> tell my truth because I edit the podcast <laughs> pretty sure you will <laughs> never mind for the record before the movie started Jonathan said I want to kiss you and I said you can so he kissed me before the movie not halfway through just to clear that up and then he ran to the bathroom and I texted my best friend to tell them how amazing the guy I was on a date with was After the movie, Jonathan drove me back to the parking lot where I'd left my car. I knew this date was different than the other ones I'd been going on. If I'm honest, I knew this guy was different than any guy I'd ever met before. And that's why I had to break it to him. You said, I really, really like you, but I'm going to Stanford in the fall. And kind of like threw me off a little bit. What I remember is that Jonathan had his own move to tell me about. He was still a student, and he had to do an internship to finish his degree. The internship he'd been able to find was in Houston for the summer. And so, like, I think the I think what I said was just like, we'll just make it work. And that was enough of an answer for me. To be honest, it made him more attractive. That night, I'd go home and write a Tumblr post that said, I just had the most amazing date, and I'm moving in September. Of course. And I'd reblog it the next morning, adding, That said, you guys, this man is incredible. I spoke to him about Stanford, and he was just super great and understanding and totally supportive. I'm seeing him again on Wednesday. I didn't know how to do anything other than find more ways to spend time with him. And that's what we did. For the next month and a half to two months, we spent a lot of time together. You were really busy. I never got to see you. I feel like we spent so much time together. I feel like we didn't spend enough time together. Okay, so we're never actually going to agree on this, as I'm more of an independent personality than Jonathan is. However much time we did spend together, we were falling for each other hard. I remember that we'd ride around in his car and Jonathan would sing at the top of his lungs to Sam Smith, who, at the time, had just had his first popular song on the radio. I spent most weekends at his apartment. One weekend, a transformer blew up down the street and the power on his block went out. We drove to the nearest Target and bought a bunch of fake battery-powered candles and sat in his living room listening to NSYNC on his couch. It's one of my favorite memories. And we watched Game of Thrones every week. I was in his living room when The Purple Wedding aired. Most of our best conversations happened on his couch or in his car. I can't remember, but I'm sure it was in one of those places that he brought up going back to Colombia. And it happened in the second week that we knew each other at the very latest. I, I think I was very, very full with you at the very beginning. Like, it's like, hey, I'm from Colombia. I'm here on their student visa. Once I graduate, I have to leave. I have to go back. Because, like, and those are the type of things that, like, people like me, while, you know, we're here under student visa and things like that, we have to let, let our partners know that. Because, like, for me, I didn't want you to fall in love with me. And then once you fall in love with me, you tell me, it's like, and then I tell you, hey, I'm leaving the country. Um, I don't, I, I didn't think it was fair. 
um, because I've already been through that. I say one of the reasons I valued our relationship early on was how communicative he was with me. But we were kind of required to communicate. And on very specific topics. You also made it clear that you were interested in dating seriously, more serious than I had ever dated. Yes. Um, but that that had nothing to do with immigration. No. The last thing I want people to, like fall in love with me or have any idea that I want to get married with them is for a piece of paper. Right. For me and like you can talk you can ask any of my friends. It's like for me it was more like I want to get married once. I want to get married once in my life and that's it. I don't want to get married for anything else. It's because I want to spend the rest of my life with that person. Talking about all of this was both very new for me and very necessary. Our circumstances were forcing us into conversations that most couples can get away without having for a long time. No lie, we had this conversation in the first couple weeks we were dating. He knew that if we got serious, and it was clear we were on that path, it was going to come up. And he wanted to nip any talk of green card marriage in the bud. The only guys I'd ever really dated were American, so I never had to worry about that. Jonathan explained to me how things would work for him after school. He'd apply for a training program called OPT and get a free year to work in the U.S. Ideally, he'd work for a place that would sponsor him for an H-1B, that's a work visa, and if they happened, they'd file his application, and he'd be entered in that lottery. If his name was drawn, he could work for that company as long as he was employed for them. After some time, he'd be able to apply for a green card and, eventually, citizenship. But there were a lot of ifs in that scenario. In fact, our new relationship was built on ifs. One night after Game of Thrones, I noticed Jonathan was being really quiet. We'd taken to watching Silicon Valley after it was over, but at that point we usually turned on the lights and weren't as strict about talking over the TV. When I asked him what was up, he shushed me and told me we were watching our show. This wasn't normal. When something's up, Jonathan gets quiet. We were less than two weeks out for him leaving for Houston for the summer. I knew what was happening. He wouldn't talk to me until Silicon Valley was over and he was forced to. We talked for a while, and he cried before I did. I barely remember what was said, but the gist was that he was going to be gone, and then I was going to be gone for a year, and then who knew what life would hold. He said he loved me. He also said he couldn't do this long-distance thing. We were breaking up. I was devastated. And for some reason, all that I could focus on for a while was the dinner that we had planned together the next night. So I made him promise to still go to dinner with me the next night, even if we broke up. And he agreed. I went home that night, and I didn't know what to do with myself. I went to work. I told my coworkers that if I seemed slow that day, it was because I was dealing with something outside of work. I tried to listen to my regular playlist, but it was full of songs that he sang me in the car. Mostly Sam Smith. And then at the end of the day, I got in my car and I drove towards his apartment to pick him up for dinner. 
And on that drive, I called my friend Avery from college. I remember um, you texting me and asking if you could call me, which I thought was kind of unusual because normally you just called. Um, So when I got the text, I, of course, sent back, yeah, of course you can call me, but I thought, okay, this has to be a serious conversation that Matt wants to have. And then when I got on the phone with you and you started describing that you were on your way to John's house and kind of what had happened in your relationship thus far, um, it brought me back to all the conversations that we had had um, sitting on the couch just talking about life. And at this point, I had never met Jonathan, but the way that you were talking about him was unlike anyone I had ever heard you talk about before. And you had vaguely said things about Jonathan before, but they were very small, and I could tell that you genuinely liked him. In this conversation, though, it was a deeper level. It was a different mat. It was a conversation about a man that you admired, a man that you were in awe of, a man that you were proud of. And judging by every conversation that we had had previously about the things that you wanted for your life, I felt like Jonathan was exactly it. When we had had conversations, just heart to heart, the the person that you described that you wanted in your life for the long haul was Jonathan to a T. And so when you were telling me that you weren't sure what you should do about your relationship, my thought was you have to at least give it a try. You've got to go over there. You've got to ask him if he'll move with you. If he says no, then you know the answer. But to not go at all would be such a heartbreak. It would be sad for you. It would be sad for Jonathan because y'all would both be missing out on something that could be extraordinary. And so I think that with those thoughts in mind, I thought, of course, you have to go over there. Of course, you have to ask him to go with you. Of course, you have to be the one to um, make the move because this is your life and you only get to do it once. And this is someone that you really see could be the one that you spend it with. So you have to make the effort. And so we went to dinner and we went back to my apartment and I said, What if, after you graduate, you move out to California and we figure it out from there? It would mean that after dating for two months, he'd leave for three, be back for two weeks, and then we'd spend a year apart before he moved across the country to be with me. It sounded ridiculous, but I'd made up my mind about this man. I loved him. He was worth all of that. I just didn't know if he felt the same about me. But he said yes. Jonathan left for Houston, and we spent a lot of time on Skype. I asked Jonathan what his favorite part of our relationship was during this period. (laughs) Um, The fact that I got to sing to you every night when I was in Houston, like Skyping, and like I promised you that I was going to sing to you every night, and even... But my terrible voice, I still sang to you. That's right. He carried his car singing to our Skype chats. And he really did sing to me every night. I spent that summer working and doing community theater in Tulsa. 
I tried to fly standby to Houston one weekend to see him, but I couldn't make it on a flight. So instead, Jonathan drove up to his parents' place in Dallas the next weekend, and I drove down to meet him. Yeah, they, like we drove to Dallas and met halfway there, and that's when you met my parents, and you got lost in Oklahoma, <laughs> making your way to Dallas. I missed one turn and was two hours later than I should have been. The fact that you and my parents got along so well, it was one of those things that like for me was a home run. My mom and my dad are so important to me. And for my partner to not get along with them was a big deal. Um, because my, you know me, family to me is number one, the primordial thing. Like from the moment you arrived, like, and you started talking to my dad, you guys got along so well and you actually convinced my dad to get a new phone to actually convince my dad to not to like give up his iPhone for another, like for an Android, which was like, what's up, man? Why are you doing that? I wasn't really trying to convince him of anything. We just got talking. He asked about my phone. I told him about it. And the next day he came home with one. What's funny is that the day I interviewed David for the podcast, Jonathan took him to the Apple store to get him an iPhone again. So if there's some sort of competition going on, I guess Jonathan is winning at the moment. But yeah, my dad looked at me and he's like, I like this guy. I can, I, I, I felt that they were happy because I finally had found somebody that was... I kind of like at the same level of like understanding um, with me. And of course, like every mom and dad, you know, they're like, you know, be careful, you know, like we don't want you to get hurt. We don't want you to like, you know, like, because I mean, I've talked to them that you were going to go to Stanford and things like that. And like the first thing my dad said is like, you know, don't fall in love. Like, you know, long distance relationship don't work. And like, I'm like that. I know I've had them <laughs> and he understood because uh, my dad is my best friend and like I've talked to him about everything. So, and then like once you guys met, it was really nice because it's like my dad, my dad really liked you. And then like that August, you know, when you came and actually met my entire family from his side because Nick's wedding, um, and you actually met my grandma. <laughs> I've never came out officially to my grandma's. And uh, I mean, she always, even even that day, she asked me, it's like, so when are we going to see a pretty lady in your life? And I mean, even though she knew, but it's like, you know, those things that grandma says. Um, and I mean, you actually have a picture with her. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, and so it's like, it was really nice because everybody, like, once they actually started realizing who you are, they were like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I mean, they knew that I was gay. So it was, like, it was just like, hey, this is Matthew's boyfriend, things like that. So that was actually one of the very, you you probably are the very first person that I've ever dated to meet my family. They didn't meet anybody else. As much as you might think meeting the family could be difficult, Jonathan was actually more worried about me or anyone he was dating meeting his friends. I'd spent some time with a group of them a few times before he left for Houston. And when Jonathan came up for Tulsa for the 4th of July, we spent the day with them. I mean, they knew that I looked at you in like a very serious way, like in a relationship way and things like that. And so it was like, I mean, they told me, like, you know, just be careful. There's five of us and we're very in that little circle of five. It's like bringing somebody from externally is very, very difficult. And I think girlfriends and girlfriends and boyfriends have found that like to be a really tough circle to get into. I actually never found this, but I can see why others might. 
they're very harmless yes but it's like when it comes to like our loved ones like they just want to make sure that we are happy Jonathan's fraternity brother, Nick, had a history of being very forthright about his opinions on Jonathan's boyfriends. You were the first person that he was just like, oh my God, yeah, like, you actually met somebody that's worth your time. And hearing that from Nick was a big thing, because like he's always been very, like, not negative, but he will give you the right opinion about the right person that you're with, and he will be like, this guy sucks, this guy's good, this guy sucks, <laughs> so, Yeah. The summer wrapped up, I went down to Houston to join Jonathan at his cousin's wedding, and we drove back to Tulsa together. This was two weeks before I was supposed to move to Stanford for grad school. And we looked at that drive as preparation for the trek we were going to have to make from Tulsa to Palo Alto. I had started packing, but I wasn't totally finished. I had some friends come help me, and Jonathan was helping when he could. He'd already started back to school, though, so he didn't have a lot of time. I'd spend my days packing and cleaning and then go stay at his place. We spent as much time together as we could. After only a couple of months, then a summer apart, we had two weeks before we'd be apart for a year. I think we reaffirmed to each other that we were doing the right thing at least daily. The last few days, my dad took off work to help me clean out my apartment and pack things into my car. He hadn't met Jonathan yet, but Jonathan called me when he got out of class and said he was coming over. I was actually scared to meet your dad. He was very serious at first. He seemed very serious to me. I think when he looked at me, he looked at you, and he looked at me, and he was just like, oh, is this the guy dating my my son? I had told my dad who Jonathan was, and I remember my dad being really out of character that day. He was nice, just quiet. What's weird is he's a really sociable guy, and he's also super okay with me being gay. But he'd never met one of my boyfriends before, so I think it was just as awkward for him as it was for Jonathan. They get along super well these days, though. In any case, they got to work, and we got everything out of the apartment and either into my car or into storage. We were ready for the drive from Tulsa to Palo Alto, and it wasn't like we could be relaxed about it. (laughs) Jonathan got out of class on Friday at noon. I had to be there for an end-of-summer week-long course I'd signed up for that started at 11 a.m. on Sunday. We had to do this drive in one straight shot. Literally, we didn't even do anything else. I didn't even get to go home or anything like that. So you picked me up at noon, and then we started driving to California. And the main reason we started driving, because you had to be there by Sunday at, like, 11 a.m., and we just drove straight for 27 hours. It was nuts. Um... Once we got there, we took a shower and then like we decided to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and then we ate food and then we went back home, slept for like four hours and then we were back on the road to take me to the airport for me to fly back to Tulsa on Sunday to be back in school on Monday. So it was definitely a very adventurous 36 hours of our lives. I remember parts of that drive being really fun. Parts of it being really somber, and parts of it being really boring. I was looking at it as the last bit of good time that I would have with Jonathan until the holidays. We could have fallen asleep when we got there. We should have fallen asleep when we got there. But we drove into San Francisco. If your podcast app shows episode art, you can see my favorite photo I've ever taken of Jonathan. It's in front of the bridge that night. We hadn't slept, his hair isn't done and he doesn't have a hat on for maybe the first time in his adult life. He looks beautiful. 
We were making jokes and taking selfies and just in general being a disgusting 2014 couple. We were happy, even though we were about to be apart. This photo is why the next year was worth it. I was worried with going back to school that it would take a while to get back in the groove of it. I was still working part-time for the company I'd been working for in Tulsa, and I hadn't been a student in about a year. Luckily for my grades, I figured it out. I made new friends both in and out of my department, and just like undergrad, I overcommitted in terms of extracurriculars. Jonathan and I texted a lot and spoke usually more than once a day. We still Skyped almost every night, but we weren't as religious about it as we had been when he was in Houston. I've said it before, but I'm a very independent person. When I was a kid, I could leave for summer camp for two weeks and forget that home was a place that even existed. Part of my growth into an adult has been remembering to call my family more than once every few months. I don't want to make this out to be all bad. It's helped me build very strong bonds with friends. And it protected me when one or two of my family members reacted poorly to my coming out. But it's a trait that I had to actively work against in order to maintain a long-distance relationship. We, I mean, we kept in touch. We, I mean, we talked as much as we could. It was difficult for me because you were very, like, independent. And so it was like when you didn't talk to me for long periods of time, I, like, I got really angry. My classmates and I would be sitting in our department working on a problem set or building a software project for a course. And I would get a text that said, yes, hello. Jonathan would be angry for a little bit, but early on he was mostly forgiving. It helped that I had tickets to visit home for both Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because every one of my breaks I went to California to see you. Um, every Christmas that you were here, we spent together. Um, so it was just like, okay, well, you know, we can make it work. I remember the car ride back to Jonathan's apartment from the airport. It had been so long since I'd seen him, that holding his hand felt like it did on our first date. This was the first time I'd come home for a holiday and not stayed with my dad. I did spend a lot of time at my dad's, though, and I brought Jonathan with me. And when you came back for Thanksgiving, that's the second time that I saw your family. And I, you actually brought me to, like, your family Thanksgiving. That's the first time that everybody kind of, like, saw me as a friend. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, like, I mean, your dad knew exactly. And, like, I think um, your sister also knew exactly. And so it's like, and everybody was just like, oh, this is Matthew's friend. So, yeah. Jonathan laughs about it now, but I think it bothered him then. My extended family didn't really know about me at the time. At least not consistently. And I wasn't ready to tell them all yet. But I wanted Jonathan to feel welcome. I remember having an argument about it with him while we were sitting on his couch around Christmas time. I spent a couple of days at my grandma's place, and he couldn't be there. Since she had as much of a hand in raising me as my dad, I cared a lot about what she thought. Our argument wasn't anything too angry, but... Jonathan had been out for a really long time, and he didn't want to hide himself. I got that. But I also didn't know what to do. We let it go at the time, because it wasn't what mattered the most. And we wanted to make the most of our time together over the holiday. After the new year, I went back to school and got back into my old habits. Jonathan was planning on visiting Stanford for his spring break, but in the meantime, we were still arguing about how absent I could be. And I was sharing my frustrations with my friends at school. You've met a few of them, but the person I talked to the most was Ariha. She was the first person I met at Stanford. We met in that week-long class I had to make it to that forced us to drive straight there. To my benefit, 
Ariha asks great questions. In regards to the being too absent thing, I think it was her that asked me the right questions that got me to start adapting my behavior a bit. I did want to maintain this relationship, and I had to act like it. But even if that was solved, underneath everything was the unavoidable uncertainty of the immigration process. As an immigrant herself, Ariha totally understood. Jonathan wasn't guaranteed to get the OBT, but you basically just need to apply to get it. But then you have 90 days to find work or a volunteer position. If you don't, you have to leave. And then you have a year. And if in that year no one will hire and sponsor you for an H-1B, you have to leave. And if your name doesn't get drawn in the H-1B lottery, you have to leave. These things weighed on our relationship. But Jonathan and I, we were absolutely in love. And we were committed to this. I was convinced that I'd made the right decision in asking him to move to California to be with me when he finished school. But due to the situation, we also had a year to think too much about it. One night, a few months after Jonathan had visited for his spring break, I went out with Ariha and a few friends. Jonathan had texted me and I'd missed him, and as I was trying to drive back towards Palo Alto in really bad traffic, he called. But I couldn't focus on the conversation. Jonathan told me to call him when I got home, and I have a habit of making calls from parking spots, so that's what I did. We ended up arguing for an hour or so. I can't honestly remember what it was about. If I have to guess, I'll say that it's just what happens when you can't be next to the person you love. You get frustrated. You're in different time zones, you have different schedules, different friends, but you love each other, and you want to make the time that you can for each other. But it doesn't happen, and things break down. Usually just for a little bit, but occasionally, you don't recover. As the conversation progressed, this felt like it might be the time that we didn't escape in one piece. The way that he was talking sounded final. At one point, he told me he'd talk to me later. He said, I love you, and he hung up. I didn't move. I sat there for a bit. To be honest, I didn't know if he was going to call me back. The secret about my independence is that I built it to protect me from my massive fear of rejection by men. But Jonathan called back in less than 10 minutes, and we did our best to smooth some parts over. And it wasn't the end. We'd live to argue another day. Whatever argument that was, it would be much less dire, and it would be in person. In August 2015, Jonathan finished up summer school and his business degree at TU. He finished his last final, and I arrived on a flight that night. The next day, we hitched a U-Haul to his car and started the same drive we'd made the year before. This time, we could do it a little slower. There was no reason to rush. And this time, there was no sad ending. We were finally going to live together. Jonathan had gotten his OPT paperwork. He had a good lead on a job. Things were promising. Sure, we were living in a tiny graduate housing apartment, meant originally for one person. 
but we were finally together. After a year of being separated by 1,700 miles, we could stand to live in a 300-square-foot apartment together for a while. One of the first things Jonathan started doing was following up on that job lead. Back in Tulsa, I'd introduced him to a couple of friends of mine from college, Joe and Anthony. And I didn't have any gay friends in Tulsa, so they were, like, the only ones that I can, like, really hang out and, like, be myself and talk to all the time. Jonathan got really close with Joe and Anthony. They became some of his closest friends in Tulsa. I'd call on a Wednesday night, and he'd be over there hanging out. They had a good group of friends, including this guy Tyler, who I'd known since I was a teenager. Tyler actually moved out to the Bay Area to take a job a few months before Jonathan did. And he let Jonathan know that his company had a position open. I think one of our, one of my trips to visit you while I was in school, I had an interview with them, and um, and it was really nice. It was I I love the guy that I interview. He was like you know the the main hiring person. It went really well, and it seemed promising. He was still looking for other work, but things were looking good. In the first couple of weeks, I think Jonathan did a couple of interviews with them. Another of Jonathan's friends from college lived down in San Jose at the time, and we had gone down to see him one night. We were driving back to Palo Alto after dinner or something, and Jonathan was holding my hand. And you looked at me, and you said, I could do this forever. Those were the actual words going through my head at the time. They popped into my head, and I said them. Jonathan had been in California for only about a month at this point. And I'd realized that I didn't ever want to be without him again, whatever that meant. If that meant moving to Bogota, it was worth it. And then that's when we started having the conversation of like, do we want to get married? We've been together for a very long time. We were, then we started to get like, you know, talk about like, you know, marriage and things like that. Turns out, for us, and for now, that meant marriage. And we were excited about it. I was scared, but I was also, like, really excited because I, I really loved you and I wanted to spend my life with you. And, I mean, I've done all these sacrifices of, like, moving across country to be with you and everything, so... We were giddy for a few days. We'd talk about it whenever we were alone. Making sure we were on the same page about what marriage meant to each other. Making sure that we were sure. Starting to look at rings and make rough plans. One of the things both of us wanted was for one of us to actually propose with a ring and everything. And I remember really well because it's like we didn't know who was going to propose to who first. We must have ordered our rings at the same time. And turns out we both had the same plan of proposing on a trip to Disneyland with our friends one weekend. But neither ring arrived on time, so that didn't happen. Then, while Jonathan was down the hall watching football in our building's common room one day, FedEx dropped off two identical boxes addressed to each of us. I put his box on his computer chair, and I opened mine. I threw away the box, and I hid the ring. I remember, like, I went out to watch college football, and when I came back, there was a box in on, on the chairs waiting for me, like, and, and I'm like, oh, what is this box? And then, like, as soon as I picked it up, like, I knew exactly what it was, and I'm like, okay. And I did not have realized that you had received the same box the same day. It was one of those things that I'm like, okay, fine, I didn't care. Um, and then when you went to the bathroom, I think I took it out of the box and, like, hid it. 
And then that night, it was just like that night we went out with, I think it was a Riha. We went to that bar. It was really bad. And then you told me, it's like, if you're going to propose to me, let it not be here, please. For the love of God, do not propose to me here. We talked about going back to where Ariha and Clark were staying to hang out with them and Kate and Nathan for a bit. Ariha and Clark left a bit earlier, and then the four of us that were left headed out. That's when Jonathan texted Ariha. Ariha was going to go to bed, and I'm like, Ariha, please do not go to bed. Just wait a couple of minutes. Um, and then she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, nothing. It's just like, can you just please wait? This is going to be... It's going to be really nice. Um, just wait. And then finally she's like, oh, I don't know if I can wait. I'm going to go to bed. And finally um, I told her. I, I, I told her and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to propose to Matthew. Um, you know, I know that, you know, I want you guys to be there. And the first thing that she said is like, are you sure this is something that he wants? Are you sure? Just like, so she ha- she got that protectiveness. And I'm like, yeah, he and I have talked about it. It's like, you know, it's going to be okay. And then once we got to the house, when we got to the house, we all went into one room. Jonathan grabbed me by the waist and kissed me, and I went to sit down. I noticed he held on to my hand a little bit longer, but I didn't think anything of it. I basically just assumed that he'd had a couple of drinks and was being affectionate. But then he started giving a speech. The moment I realized what was happening, I awkwardly stood back up and walked over to him. I heard some noise in the background, and as Jonathan pulled the ring out of his pocket... I realized it was Kate trying to get Nathan to look up from his phone. He looked at me, he's like, oh, it's happening. And so I proposed to you then, and it was really pretty because it's like we were with your closest friends at the time. Um, and it was just like the six of us. And he, like, it was very, I felt that it was like, it was the right time. Um, it was the right time, it was the right place. And then like, you know, we just drank champagne and... Yeah, it was really, it was, I don't know, it was like, it was just really happy. One day that fall, Jonathan and I were relaxing at the student union when he got an email. He saw it come in on his watch and quickly pulled out his phone. He read it, and I knew exactly what it was. He looked up and told me, I didn't get the job. Then he stood up and he walked away. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of disappeared for a little bit just because it's like I didn't, I walked around campus a little bit and then like just went and cried at one of the benches, like behind a building um, where there was nobody watching or anything like that. And it kind of like, it struck me really hard just because it's like, I felt that I've done everything right. And I definitely had the education, the mentality, I had everything going for me and like not getting that job after, you know, being praised for, you know, like how well I interviewed and how much they liked me and things like that was very difficult. And then, you know, later on finding out that they didn't have me because they didn't want it to sponsor me. It was really tough. Um, and a lot of companies go to that. Jonathan's 90 days were counting down. He'd lose his OPT if he didn't find work or a volunteer position soon. We were also finding that to get most of the jobs you could get in Texas or Oklahoma with a degree that Jonathan had, companies in California wanted you to have an engineering degree. We were talking this over with a friend and her husband, Jay, one day, and he mentioned that he'd been looking for someone that could volunteer some time to do some IT work. And so because I could not find any job in California, because apparently in California you have to have an engineering degree to do anything, um, I did 
system administrative job for Jay's school. And that was fun. I mean, I got to learn a lot, making sure that everything was connected together. So like everybody has service and like everything works out all the time, like opening computers, fixing computers, changing everything inside the computer for them to be able to have fully functioning devices for kids that are coming into school. Um, it was fun. Jonathan and I were married on December 18, 2015, at the Tulsa County Courthouse. The Supreme Court had only made that possible across the U.S. about six months before. And it had only been a year since it had been legal in Oklahoma. Gay marriage was legal in all 50 states, and it was a beautiful thing for us to be able to get married in Oklahoma. We actually were the first ones to arrive to the courthouse, and then all these unfortunate series of events happened. Jonathan's parents were there. My sister and aunt were there, but my dad, who'd made plans to fly in from a job site he was on in Ohio, got stuck there, and he couldn't make it. Then, my best friend Anna's car broke down while they were driving from Oklahoma City to Tulsa that morning. And you were really upset and really angry, and you said, if Anna's not here, we're not getting married. And I'm like, calm down, it's okay, I mean, I don't know what else to do. Shout out to the tow truck driver that dropped Anna off at the courthouse that day. We were the first to arrive, but the last couple to get married. And then we got married, and I remember the judge at the courthouse saying, it's like, it is my absolute pleasure to, you know, have to marry you guys here. Um, it's, it's been, it's like, she just kept saying that, and I remember my mom saying, it's like, she means it, she's a judge. <laughs> it was really nice, and then, you know, like, that night we had our friends come back for, like come to the hotel for like a dinner and we had like a really nice room. My mom reserved a really nice room for us to have wonderful, wonderful meal. Um, some of my family was there. Our best friends were there. Um, and it was just like a very inclusive like wedding. Yeah. I'm, I was happy that it wasn't a lot of people. I was happy that it was just like the people that we loved the most. Um, except for your dad because I really wanted him to be there, but we also understood it. Before you get too worried about my dad missing out, the plan was always to do a courthouse wedding with a small reception in Tulsa, and then follow it up with a bigger reception at Jonathan's parents' house on Lake Erie later that summer. So while we did miss my dad that day, he was able to make it out to the reception in New York in August. This ended up being a really cool way to do things, because some people we knew in the Oklahoma-Texas area could easily make a trip to Tulsa but wouldn't be able to fly out to New York. But then there was this whole crowd of people who really wanted to be in New York, but weren't available for the wedding in Tulsa because we got married so close to Christmas. Not only that, but it allowed Jonathan and I to have our moment in a place that represented each of us. Tulsa was a shared place for us, but it was where I grew up. And Lake Erie was where Jonathan's family had always spent their summers and holidays. He has so many great memories and friends up there, and both events were beautiful. After the Tulsa wedding, we spent Christmas with my family. This Christmas, it was clearly more important for my extended family to know who Jonathan was. So we told a few more people, and if people asked, we told them. Jonathan finally got to be a part of our family.
and then after the wedding is when we like actually had to start like reading about immigration and paperwork and shit like that that we did not know anything about. There are plenty of misconceptions about immigration in the U.S. Some people think all undocumented immigrants illegally cross the border. A lot of people think there is a, quote, right way for anyone who wants to immigrate to the U.S. to get in line. But something so many people don't understand is that marrying a U.S. citizen doesn't mean a magic wand gets waved and, boom, you can live and work freely in the United States. Let me lay out the process for a person to get their green card through marriage. This is going to be complicated, but believe it or not, I'm simplifying it a bit. It's confusing from the start, because it depends on your situation. Have you been deported? If so, you'll need to wait 10 years to apply for any U.S. visa at all. Are you on a J-1 or J-2 visa with a two-year home residency requirement? You'll need to go live in your home country for two years before applying for any kind of U.S. visa at all. Okay, so neither of those are the case. Now, let's assume you're not married yet. If you get married on a visitor visa and then apply for a green card, you are committing visa fraud. The B-2 visa requires entering the U.S. with the intention of returning by the date on your I-94. You are out of luck. You can get married and go back home, though. That's fine. So instead, what you can do is you can apply for a K-1 visa, more commonly known as the fiancé visa. The K-1 visa requires a U.S. citizen to file an I-129 petition for alien fiancé and an I-864 affidavit of support. If you receive that visa, you must marry the petitioner within 90 days of entering the U.S., But say you're on an F-1 visa, a student visa like Jonathan was. Then you don't need the fiancé visa. You can go get married. At this point, you can stay in the U.S., but also you can't necessarily work, unless you've got some other situation going on that works that part out. And if you leave the country, you probably won't be able to get back in. When you're ready, your U.S. citizen spouse will file an I-130, Petition for Alien Relative, and an I-864, Affidavit of Support. The I-130 is the official petition by your spouse for you to immigrate to the U.S. You'll include with this form what USCIS calls evidence of bona fide marriage. I didn't know how much you went into that until we started, like, we got the lawyer and, like, she explained to us exactly everything we needed. And we're like, oh, my God, this is a lot of stuff. It took us four months to get that packet together. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine four months. Thousands of pictures. Texts, Skype conversations. It's crazy. Um, Just to prove that we love each other is nuts. The affidavit of support says that your spouse can financially support you should that be necessary. This is what people mean by sponsoring. If your spouse can't sponsor you, say if you're marrying a grad student, for example, there are other forms that other people can fill out to sponsor you. You will file an I-765, Application for Employment Authorization, an I-131, Application for Travel Document, and an I-485, Application to Register Permanent Residence or Adjust Status. The I-485 is your application for a green card. We'll dig into what happens after you file that in a bit, but just know that it takes a long time. Because it takes so long, there's a temporary work and travel permit that you can get. And that is what the I-765 and I-131 are there for. So you submit all these forms, plus a few more I didn't mention, and then approximately 90 days after they're received by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, as long as USCIS doesn't want more info, you'll receive your Employment Authorization Document, your EAD. This is your temporary work and travel permit. 
This can, and honestly often does, take a little longer than 90 days. Likely in that 90 days, you'll be invited to a USCIS field office to provide your fingerprints. After this, you wait. How long depends on the address you listed when you filed. We waited for almost a year, and a lot happened in that year. As graduation approached, I was interviewing for jobs. It was going really well, and I was sure I was about to get an offer. One day while I was walking out of class, I got a call from the recruiter. They wanted to hire me, but they had one question. You came home and you're like, what do you think about moving to D.C.? <laughs> and for me, it was really tough as well because it's like I've already like moved in away from Tulsa. And then I was just trying to get a base in California. And then moving to D.C., it was a completely different market. And I mean, we looked at all the options of like, okay, we'll move to D.C. And, you know, like maybe it's a little bit easier for me to find a job here. And when we moved here, we actually found out that it wasn't that easy just because it's like for any job that you find here in D.C., you have to have some kind of clearance level. Um, so it was really tough at the beginning. Um, Next time, it's me that makes the move for Jonathan's career. He's made enough sacrifices. When you're waiting to hear back from USCIS, you can file a change of address form if you have to move. Since we were moving to a completely different coast, this would change the field office our case was operating out of. We had a lot of worries about that basically restarting our waiting period, but that ended up not being the issue that we had. One evening, we were at home, and we received an email from our lawyer with the details of our interview. They'd received the paperwork before we had. We both immediately noticed the problem. The interview had been scheduled in San Jose, where we originally filed. This was strange. We'd received confirmation of our address change, and we'd actually received Jonathan's temporary work and travel permit at our Virginia address. I'm still not really sure what happened, but we got our interview rescheduled for April at a field office nearby. Now, if you're looking to get a green card through marriage, it all comes down to the interview. And ours had arrived. When you get there, the place feels exactly like you'd expect it to feel. Fluorescent and dry, but full of anxious energy. Occasionally, someone comes out of a room and talks to someone. In our case, at one point, someone came out and was really harsh with a family that was there. Lady in the family noticed that, you know, she failed her civics exam um, because she didn't speak English. And telling that lady that, you know, she didn't want to see her with them next time she was there. When they called Jonathan's name, he was so anxious, he got up and left me there with our stack of paperwork. It was very nerve-wracking. Because she even asked me for, like, your birthday, and I even gave it the wrong year. It said 91 instead of 90, so it was just like, ugh. It's nerve-wracking because your entire life, your entire relationship, your entire, like, career plan, it all comes down to that interview. That interview could be the factor determining where you stay or you go. Like, that's pretty much it. There's no, like, other way to put it. It's like, that interview is it. Like, they're the ones that decide. It's like, okay, you know, do you have all the paperwork correctly? I'm going to ask you some questions, make sure that you know them. And um, if you don't answer me correctly, you pretty much, like, that's the end of it. So it's, 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 it was stressful. It was so much pressure. Like, that interview put so much pressure on the person. And, I mean, I know that millions of people go through that. 
right? But it's like it puts pressure on the person, like just by answering a couple of questions. It's like, wow. When the interview is over, if everything goes well, within two weeks, you receive your green card in the mail. Jonathan got his green card a year ago today as I'm writing this. He is a conditional permanent resident of the United States. A conditional permanent resident. Jonathan's green card has a condition, which means it's only valid for two years. Why? Well, we were married for less than two years before he applied for his green card. 90 days before his green card expires, he can file to have the condition removed, and we'll interview again. If everything goes well, he'll get his 10-year green card. The thing about this whole process is that it's a burden on people who are just trying to live their very normal lives. Jonathan has no reason to worry about getting his condition removed. But that doesn't mean it doesn't weigh on him. Just the nature of the system takes a toll. Right? I mean, there's always concern that I'm not going to get approved for like an actual green card afterwards. And then there's always concerns that I'm not going to get approved for like when I want to apply for citizenship or things like that. Um, this whole immigration process is so difficult and so demanding and so taxing that it's like at one point or another, you kind of just don't care. And it's not that you don't care because you don't want to be here. It's that you don't care because like your brain and your body has taken so much like emotions in and out that it's like, I, you just kind of get to a point where like, I just don't know what else to do. I mean, I'm going to keep loving you until I die. Hopefully. I mean, you and I have such an amazing relationship that whatever we have to, like, deal with in the future, we will deal with it and we'll deal with it together. It's not going to be like you're on your own. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like it's always that little grain in the back of your head saying it's like, what if they don't approve you? Then what then? Will, will you be willing to move to another country with me would you be willing to give up everything here to move to another country with me are you ready for that are you ready for the moment that they say sorry but you know we're not gonna give you like another status um sorry but we will terminate your green card or um you can't apply for citizenship right um so it's, it's like, it's those things that, you know, are constantly in the back of my head that at any point when we're going through the application process for like my taking away the provisional green card and like forward towards um, citizenship, that they might say no. And when they say no, are you going to be ready to like move with me? wherever we need to move. So that's always there. Do you feel like you have gotten to relax a little bit? A little bit, right? I mean, as we apply for things and like, you know, like the permits get a little bit longer than normal because before it was just one, one, one year, one year, one year. Now with my provisional green card is two years and we actually have to start preparing ourselves for... Uh, 2019 to apply for the non-provisional green card. Um, and then after that, you know, preparing ourselves to apply for citizenship. So we've been, I've been dealing with this for 20 years now, 
So it's not like something that I've dealt with in the past three years. I've been dealing with this for 20 years. So it's something that is it's always there. For the record, Jonathan's got nothing to worry about. But if we met the wrong immigration officer on the wrong day, I'd move without hesitation. I'd be devastated. We'd both be leaving our home for a place that we don't know. But we belong together, wherever that happens to be. But it's likely that won't happen. In a little less than a year, we'll apply to remove the condition on Jonathan's green card. We'll wait for a long time, probably longer than the one-year extension letter he'll get on filing will allow for. This is normal these days. After Jonathan has had his green card for nearly three years, he can submit the N-400, Application for Naturalization. That is, he can apply for citizenship. The way things go, we'll probably still be waiting for his condition to be removed at the time. What will eventually getting citizenship like allow you to have? Everything. Like the fact that, you know, if something happens to my parents, I know that I can take care of everything that has to happen after that. Um, being the country that I love and, you know, the country that I grew up in. And I know that people are going to be, why not say Matthew? Because, I mean, you're already here with me, right? You're going to be with me whether I'm here in this country or not in another country and things like that. And it's like, it's not the same rights as other people. That, to me, is like a big thing. Um, Because I'm, and I'm not trying to sound pity or anything like that, but I'm like Latin American LGBT guy who has two college degrees, has a certificate from the University of Cambridge uh, to teach English, and it's still very difficult for me to find jobs. So I'm hoping that, you know, with citizenship, all that changes. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I hope. For now, citizenship is a long way off. Things are a little more mundane right now, and we get to be a couple. We get to learn how to live with each other and make decisions about our future. We get to argue about money and pretend that we can afford to buy a house in the overpriced D.C. area. We get to make new friends and miss our old ones. And we get to go grocery shopping and buy more avocados than are really necessary. And Jonathan gets to breathe for a little while. There is more of this process to come. But for now, he's just another guy trying to make a living for his family. For a little while, he's just got the problems everybody else has. And you know what? I think that's okay. In my opinion, he's owed a little boring. He's had a lifetime of everything else. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. Music was provided by Breakmaster Cylinder. Status is a member of the Podglomerate. Check out all the great Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. I'm going to be taking a small break, but I'll be back next time with the final two episodes of Status. 
I sure hope that you'll be here when I get back. Talk to you then.